Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Geek Rant episode. We're not sure yet. Uh, recorded on May 8th, 2016, uh, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. I am your host, Mark the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and this week we have a special uh, retro episode. We are in our hiatus right now for the summer of 2016, and we didn't want you to miss anything, so we're giving you some old rehashed reruns. I hate it when podcasts do that, so I'm doing it. Uh, but, uh, what, what we thought we would do is we've picked three, um, gems of episodes that we think, uh, were just, um, you know, gems, just like I said, things that are worth, uh, revisiting. And, and if you want to skip over it, you can, but we thought they were important enough to bring back. And so this is Seth's episode, Seth's pick. And Seth, your episode is. My episode is Everyday Linux 126. Are you talking to me? Um, this was our New Year's, um, special a couple of years ago. We did the history of telecommunications, a lot of short little tidbits about communications as well as some vignettes and stories. And if you're someone who loves trivia, like I love trivia and trivial type things that are pointless in the greater scheme of things, but really need to know, um, uh, this show would be right up your alley. Cause you know, we talk about whenever, um, the first telegraph happened around the world first phone switch being installed things like that and it was just i enjoyed the legwork to put the show together i guess maybe not legwork because maybe my finger work but that sounds weird <laughs> uh, so i i just uh, i thought it was uh, i enjoyed putting this show together probably more than any other show we've ever done and so i will have a chance to reminisce on it and hopefully you will too um you know, you can just kind of keep in touch with us while we're recharging the batteries and planning great things for the rest of the year. And I, I would say this is probably the most or certainly one of the most uh, researched episodes we ever did. I spent two or three weeks on this one. And Seth, I know you did, too. And we actually made an effort to know what we were talking about. Um, and this one, as Seth already said, was one of one of the most fun episodes that we did. Uh, and hopefully you'll find it useful to hear again. Yeah. When we were doing this episode, I kind of played the moronic guy who didn't know anything, which I do so well, uh, and I learned a lot on this episode, so it's a great one. Uh, Seth, thank you for bringing this one back up so everyone who is new gets to hear a great show. So we, we take the uh, the Android smartphone and go all the way back to smoke signals almost. I don't think we <laughs> quite went that far, but darn close to it. So here it is, uh, without further ado, episode 126, Are You Talking to Me? on the now defunct Everyday Linux show. No, not defunct. It evolved. Oh, the evolved Everyday Linux show. Yes. We, we crawled out of our chrysalis and we are no longer an ugly caterpillar. We are now a beautiful butterfly. And welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 126. Are you talking to me? Recorded December 29th, 2013, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Linux show that isn't about Linux, but is about life in the context of Linux. We sort of had a, a little 
almost ancillary show last week where it was just basically me blathering about Christmas. But we're back this week strong and full with our entire complement of hosts ready to rock your world. And of course, our entire complement of hosts consists of the great one, the command line godfather, Mr. Chris Neves. Hey, Chris. Hello, everyone in TV land or I guess podcast land. How is it today? I had to pause for a minute there to give him room to dr- down his beer that he started drinking just as I started introing him there. That's what that little stutter was. I had to give him time. And, of course, the, the sober counterparts to the drunken command line godfather is Seth, the gooey kid Anderson. Hey, Seth. Howdy, Mark, and welcome, Element Opiates, to the last recording of the year and first broadcast of the new year. Right. Woo-woo! It's the last you time. Know, I almost- Go ahead. I was going to say, I almost take offense to that. I am not drunk. I just cracked this beer. Okay, Thank give it you. time. Give it time. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe three or four into it, I'll be drunk. <laughs> but yeah, right now, we're, we're, we're happy. Yes, this is the last show of uh, 2013 for recording. We're recording it December 29th. It will go out on January 1st. Um, so since it's a holiday and, and not just any old holiday, the holiday where we talk about history and retrospectives and most shows are uh, going to be doing some sort of best of 2013. We, we thought about that and realized we didn't have any best of. So, uh, tonight we're going to look back at a history of, uh, communications, telecommunications, communications in general. Now, before we get too far into this, I want to tell the literal net out there. That no, this is not an exhaustive history of every breakthrough. Some of our facts may be a little fast and loose. Some of the dates may be approximate. This is just stuff we found interesting about from the time we first started wanting to talk to each other to where we are today. So back off on the email that you're already starting to type. Just relax a little bit. (laughs) This is supposed to be a holiday fun show. And also check your facts because even as I was doing this on different websites, I found different versions of the story. That's true. So, um, you know, I went with the ones that seemed more plausible to me and I do, I can pull out my arbitrator of internet <laughs> truth, uh, just as soon as I make one, if I need to card. And if we need to, we can go get Seth's dad who spent his career doing telephone communications and he can just, he's one of the best BSers in the world. Uh, we can just sit him down in front of a microphone for a few hours if we need to. Yeah. I got a couple guys like that in my neck of the woods, too, that we could, if we want to bring them on the show, we can try. Can't guarantee the level of truth that will be involved in what he tells you, but it will be interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, but before we do that, Happy New Year. The one second holiday. This this bothers me, guys. I mean, I, I New really? Year. I don't understand New Year's. It's a one-second holiday. Everybody gets together. They get really drunk. They watch a clock. They go Happy New Year, and then it's over. I don't under. I'm not one of those people who understands the arbitrary division of one day to another. Help me out. Give me some festivus joy here. Why? Why should I care about New Year's? Well, it's a chance to kind of wipe the slate clean you get to bury all of your crushed hopes and dreams that you didn't accomplish last year and you get to set yourself up for failure by coming up with all these new hopes and dreams of how much greater this year is going to be so you have a day of joy to look forward to because 
probably going to be the only joy you have during the whole year. But why can't you just uh, do that on any given Wednesday? Why can't you just declare Wednesday my everything in the past is the past day and today we start over again? Because if well, you're doing you that by yourself, they lock you up in the insane <laughs> asylum. But if everybody does it, you have no choice but to accept it. Interesting bit of <laughs> trivia. The uh, the reason that we celebrate April Fool's Day, I know about this because that's my birthday and I've heard all the April Fool's jokes all my life, is because when they changed the, the calendar uh, from the old, uh, cal- uh, uh, I'm blanking on the name of it, um, something in... Uh, we we moved to Gregorian from I can't remember anyway when we moved the to the one. Gregorian calendar we moved the new year from April 1st to January 1st some people refused to acknowledge that and still celebrated on April 1st and like Seth said when you're a small group of of rebel rousers you're insane they were fools they were the April fools but when everybody does right. it it's okay well, then I guess we're okay, <laughs> since everyone seems to do it. Uh, so, so you, I take it you don't celebrate at all then, Mark, do you? Well, I take the excuse to do stuff that I wouldn't ordinarily do. You know, I take a day oh. off of work because I can, right? Actually, I took the last two weeks of this year off, the longest break I've had in a very long time. It's almost 19 days when you add in the weekends and everything. Uh, no, that's an hour, 14 days, something like that. It's a long break. Um, so, uh, it's the longest I've had since I can remember. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, we could call that Christmas, right? But I'm taking the extra week off for new Year's. So yes, I'm taking advantage of it and I will throw a party for my kids and we'll have, uh, streamers and stuff, but that's for them. Um, not for me. So basically you wanted to be at home the whole time your kids were at home from school. Something like that. I, I Yeah. <laughs> Basically, I am a hypocrite who who says I don't understand this, but does it anyway. Welcome to the internet. Oh, you may have heard of it. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so Seth, are you doing anything entertaining for the holiday? I am debating on whether I want to go see the Trans Siberian Orchestra Monday night. They are going to be in Dallas. Uh, tickets are like eighty, ninety bucks yeah. a piece. But I'm like. I'm thinking, you know, if you know me, I'm a cheap tightwad who really doesn't like paying anything above matinee prices for movies. But I'm actually thinking about it might be kind of cool to go see them. But I'll probably end up just going home and sleeping late and taking the day off. The closest I've come to is to see some live video, concert video footage. And those guys really know how to rock the house. But yeah, I, I could do They came to Atlanta before Christmas. And I just I just couldn't bring myself to... Uh, like you said, like ninety bucks for the ticket, so that's a one for me, one for my wife. So we're up to nearly two hundred bucks now. Then there's parking, which anywhere in right. the metro area, you know, of any city, is going to cost you twenty five, thirty bucks. Um, and then you know, it was a week night, it was a work night, so I would have been getting home late. And, and in the end, it's like I've got three other CDs. I'll just listen to those. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Like if, a couple if they of ever people- came up this side. If they really came up to the Montana area, um, I would probably end up taking my wife to them because we both enjoy their music a lot. And for something that big to be in our area, it would be definitely a go-see. See, I followed those guys since they were Sabotage back in the 80s because I I go back to the hair metal days. Um, So I'm a a true fan, but I'm also a true tightwad. (laughs) Yeah, 
if I can get somebody to go with me, I will probably shell out the two hundred dollars to go see them. But uh, so chances are, I'm probably not going. That's uh, that's that's how I look at that. All right. Well, well bef- let's hope to it. Before we get too far into the show, I have we sort of buried the lead, and and I apologize for that. The most important thing going on this week, and really for the next few weeks on the internet, is a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, I posted about it in our bad movie forums. I posted about it on Facebook. You have to go there. Go donate a buck, twenty bucks, whatever, to Kung Fury. <clears throat> Kung Fury by Laser Icon Unicorns. Yes, laser Unicorns. Yes, Kung Fury. And there, uh, if you go to their Kickstarter page, about three quarters of the way down, there is a a uh, no. I'm sorry. Part of their intro video is also a thirty second. Um, trailer but you can watch the trailer you can just uh, google uh you can youtube you can google youtube um kung fury and find it and it is just amazing these guys wanted to make a bad 80s sci-fi cop kung fu movie and so they did and they just went out with their canon uh, 5d mark ii and started filming stuff and everything's green screen and 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 the their kickstarter project they wanted to raise two hundred thousand dollars to hire graphic artists and real professionals to draw in all the green screen stuff. And uh, so their their day, their campaign was for 30 days, and they wanted to get $200,000. They hit $200,000 on, like, hour 19. Uh, they, uh, Gizmodo got a hold of it. Dig got a hold of it. Um, and once they did it, right now as we're recording this show, they're at $330,921. Why am I telling you this? Well... Because we need to get them to their stretch goal. Their stretch goal of a million dollars is that they will rewrite the 30-minute film that they've already recorded and are just post-producing and make it a two-hour feature film. This needs to happen, people. Go to their... The link will be on their web, uh, website, on our uh, show notes. Uh, but just Google Kung Fury. Once you watch the video, once you watch the trailer, you will understand why this must happen. The world needs this movie. I'm telling you, if you've never backed anything on Kickstarter, go back this. Do it. That's an order. Pseudo. Go and back this. <laughs> it's, it's, so, <laughs> they, the, Kung Fury is the guy's name. He's the cop's name. And Kung Fury has to go back and, uh, fight, um, the the worst bad guy in history, which is of course Adolf Hitler, also known as Der Fuhrer, um, and so they build a time machine out of eighties in televisions and Commodore sixty fours, and because it's the eighties, they go back too far, and he ends up in Viking land and recruits a couple of them to go fight ninja um, uh, Adolf Hitler, and then from there they end up back even farther in dinosaur world so kung fury and a viking are riding on a dinosaur chasing after um adolf hitler what more do you need to know go and back this project it is awesome and and awesomer and awesomer the more i learn about it okay mark here's the deal if you pledge 250 dollars we get a 20-second video where Kung Fury will say whatever we want. So I'll do 85. <laughs> if Chris will do 85. Uh, I'll actually do 90. I'll be the one that does 90. And we can get like a 20-second spot for um, – uh, 
whatever I like. <laughs> I'm so Fury now for every day Linux. We can get a 20 second spot for every day Linux from Kung Fury for $250. Oh. I, I would give 90 if y'all want to do 85 each. Oh, the stretch goal. It has to happen. And, and the, it needs to, it's just awesome. It's, they're flying around in a DeLorean for crying out loud. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Um, and where'd they find a DeLorean? Uh, you know, you can pick those up on eBay for six or eight bucks these days. Uh, so go check, get them to their stretch goal. I need this two-hour movie to exist. Can you imagine what the Sci-Fi Channel would do with this movie? It would play oh 24 hours a day for a month. This is awesome. It needs to happen. Pure and simple. If you love bad movies, you owe it to yourself. You owe it to me to go and back this project. You owe it to the world. That's right. I never ask wow. anything of you, but I'm telling you, if if you don't go and back this project, puppies will die. No, this is the internet. <laughs> Kittens will die. You must. Anyway, what I'll, I think is what I think is interesting is when you go down the list for the uh, pledge goals, and you get down to the bottom where they never seem to go. You know, the, the right. pledges never seem to be hit. They're already gone. The top two tier of the pledges, the 5,000 and 10,000 goals, are already taken care of. Somebody's already donated $10,000, and the other one is $25,000. So, wow. Come on. We at least need to get some of these other ones. Oh, and it's going to be released on the Internet for free. So the 30-minute version is already done. It's going to happen. They got their $200,000. If they make it a two-hour feature film, it's going to be released for free. Now, they will probably set up some... uh, uh, movie theater filmings if they can, but it's not about making money. It's about it's about the passion for 80s cheese. Um, so if you love awesome. the last Kung Fu monk, then you have to go and back Kung Fury. And be, another, be a, a member of the 9,000 people that have already donated. Come on. We need to make this happen. Do it. Pseudo go and do it. All right, enough about that, Seth. You have a shout-out to some fellow podcasters in the world. Yes. um, I scour the Internet from time to time in a vanity exercise to see how deep the element OP penetration has gotten. And I found a list of Linux podcasts that we were not a member of. So I sent him an email and said, hey, how about adding us? And he replied back, said, I've been lazy. I meant to add you for a while. I went ahead and did it. So the Linux link, um, it's the linuxlink.net. And they just they list a whole bunch of different Linux podcasts. And we are on the list. So, yay. And, and he has a category of shows not about Linux, and we're not in it. We're actually in the Linux show category. Right. Sweet. <laughs> So, uh, you know, and then there's a little caveat where you click on us, you click the plus by us, and it's like, you know, we say we're not really about Linux, but we're live in the context of Linux. So, you know, they they gave us some advertising, so I'll give them some advertising right back. Thanks, guys, for adding us. Really appreciate it. There's plenty of Linux love to go around. Um, I was talking to somebody just recently about podcasting in general and and, you know, my desires to go rich and famous about it and and everybody always has the same response. Yeah, I've, I've I've heard of those. I even I even listened to a couple. Well, where just a few years ago nobody would have said that. Only the geeks right, yeah. would have said that. But now you know the the grocer down the street will say, Yeah, I listen to the opening An- and Anthony podcast, or I listen to Howard Stern's podcast, or something like that. So we're it's such a nascent market, such a little baby right now. 
and I'm hoping that we can ride the Linux love. I mean, if we get every Linux user to listen to our show, that'll be a couple of hundred at least, and it'll be awesome. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> oh, I kid, I kid. Speaking of listeners, let's listen to some listener feedback uh, that we've received in the mailbag. You guys keep them coming, by the way. This is not all of them. This is just a sampling of them. Um, so if I didn't get to yours this week, I will next week or the week after, but keep them coming. The more, the merrier. James wants to know about shells. He was asking, well, I'll just read the whole thing. said, was wanting to suggest a show to discuss terminal shells. What are some of the most common shells out there and what the differences are? Uh, I know, uh, of the, the usual bash and have heard of ZSH and fish and dash. What makes one better than any other? And how should, would, should you go about deciding if they need to change from the defaults installed with a distro, distro? I have not listened since episode one, so this may have been covered in an earlier show. Anyway, keep up the great work, guys. James, probably your only arch using listener. Well, James, you're a hero for using arch. <laughs> um, no kidding, but to, to request a show, admittedly we've done some shows with really thin topics before but i don't think we could do a show on this one because the only one who'd have any input would be chris yeah and honestly out of all those different shells bash i mean there's a reason why they're not the default anymore um they just bash kind of overshines for feature sets on most of them uh there are some benefits but they're very limited feature sets um so yeah, Bash is kind of the the king dog until something better comes along. So at this point, um, yeah, it's really really uh, five second type listening show time. So um, yeah, we'll we'll pass on this one. But there's there's plenty of other people that have talked about the difference of the shells. Um, it, if I can find my link, I'll post it in the forums. But I know I haven't been able to find anything really well written about the different shells for a long time. So, yeah. Well, Chris, maybe it's time for a 30-day challenge for you. Maybe you should use a different uh, scripting shell every day for 30 days and report back to us. Ow. (laughs) Do you want me to be drinking more than this every day? Come on now. (laughs) Well, just Yeah, that'll be the episode uh, I miss. So... uh... (laughs) Because I would have nothing at all to say. I'll just like, after the newscast, we'll go ahead and do my link and I'll leave and uh, y'all can carry on. <laughs> but, you know, it takes an arch user to even ask that question. Um, I, you know, I'm a pretty, I, I don't, I hesitate to say advanced. I'm a, I'm a long time Linux user and I've never even looked at what shell I was using. I just, I click the button and whatever comes up on whatever distro, they all do the same commands I don't even think about it. I didn't even. I've never heard of ZSH or Fish or Dash. So, yep. James, you're you're an elite uh, listener there, um, but we got nothing for you, friend. I'm sorry. Other than a shout out and some love. Yeah, and you know, like I said, they're so they're so fine tuned. I guess there are some very good things for each one of those different shells, but Bash kind of covers everything in one big umbrella, which is why it's currently the default. And there's reason for it. There you go. And moving on, the Linux ghosts uh, would like to ask about uh, firmware for your routers. Said, so I'd like to hear about GNU slash Linux based software for routers like OpenWRT, DDWRT, or FreeWRT. Why would they 
benefit an average GNU slash Linux user over just a store-bought router using software already installed from the factory. I've tried in the past to build my own Boris box from an old P4 and failed to get it working as a router. Would be interested in changing the firmware uh, on my router to enhance it. Um, so Linux Ghost, those things are, as far as I know, to the average user, there's not any significant advantage. To the advanced user, you can tweak all sorts of things. You can crank up the radio power at the software level. You can turn uh, a regular cheap um, access point into a repeater uh, or into a, a bridge. Or you know, there's there's things that you can do to emulate much more expensive equipment with those those router things. But for the average guy who just wants something between the world and him, I don't see the point. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, we talked about this uh, a few episodes ago. Um, not has the main body, but if you have a lot of users in your house, this could be a time where if you flash it, That's you true. might get more performance. Um, you know, it just, it kind of, it would depend on your circumstances. And you could, if you wanted to be archaic and very technical, I'm sure there are specific models of uh, wireless NICs that don't work well with some routers and that would be way more effort than I want to put into it but it could be that if you were to change what you used has your you know onion or what tomato or something like that instead of the default thing you would get possibly better performance wirelessly and definitely you get better security uh all the little plastic boxes you buy at the store um are just really the baseline and and there's all kinds of problems with them that are well known. So the the tomato router or or DDWRT those guys um um have fixed those problems. Your your default password isn't admin uh with with no username. Uh so you you do get some advantage like that. Uh, but if if the Boris box was more than you could handle then you probably don't want to mess around with these things. You might end up with just a bricked uh, router just just my thoughts yeah. that i would go the same way um if yeah if you're having a hard time setting up a boris box these are going to be even harder um, because you have to do a lot of manipulation inside your machine to you know static your ip and then set up a, a you know depending on the type of of hardware you have you may have to set up a terminal session or not a terminal but a um a telnet session to upload the firmware blob um I know personally, my little Asus router that I have, um, I originally had DDWRT on it because it supported it, but I ended up taking a, going back to the original firmware because I didn't need all the extra features and bells and whistles that it put into it, um, especially since I set up my PFSense router. Uh, all I did is put my router in bridge or in a, you know access point mode, and I haven't gone back to touch that router since. Um, but yeah, if if you're having a hard time with with setting up a Boris box, you know, OpenWRT or DDWRT can be a mountain to climb over. Um, the biggest benefit that I ever seen is for setting up repeaters or bridges. Um, otherwise, I really have never seen a, a really a monster use for uh, f replacing the the factory firmware, unless you're trying to squeeze every ounce of performance out of it. 
or you are one of those unlucky souls that have a router that ends up um, maxing out connections. So like if you're a torrent user, uh, I've seen routers that just bog out because you have too many connections going through it. And changing your firmware could help that, but then you're you're you know in a very small pool of users. So spend the money on a super high end router instead of monkeying with firmwares. All right. Uh, hey guys, you know I have a couple of extra wireless routers. That might could be a future show. Is me going through the trials and travails of uh, trying to just flash that from an end user perspective whether it would be super easy or super difficult yeah i've got four or five of them laying around it just as tends to happen over the years uh, i might uh, yeah. join you in that that's not a bad idea put that on the calendar good luck somewhere. guys not that we have a calendar yeah um <laughs> uh moving on to the next question brent has a bunch of questions primarily regarding uh virtualization he says first question Altio looked pretty awesome. Is there another uh, alternative that I'm missing? We have a client who uses Windows applications like Office and also uses a SUSE box for special meta- for a special medical program. This appears it may be a solution. Thanks. I'm not sure I got both a subject and a predicate there, uh, Brent. Um, you sort of jumped in in the middle of a thought, but uh, <laughs> Altio uh, is not something I've heard of before. It looks like uh, it's... Uh, You've got a Windows uh, uh, presentation server or uh, what do they call it? Remote desktop server that connects to a Linux server that then sends it out to the desktop clients. I, I haven't spent any of any time looking at it at all um, to deliver Windows applications. Um, and then I'm going to go, before I say anything else here, I'm going to go on to a second and third question. Second question, we have clients that use Windows for terminal services. Is there a good alternative? I've looked into LTSP but can't get it to run correctly. And then the third question, is there a way to boot directly into a terminal session login like RDP for a Microsoft server, maybe a PXE solution? Also, uh, in an episode y'all mentioned, y'all, he's from the South, uh, virtualization software and didn't mention Zen Server. They now have open source the project Um have an open source project by Citrix. So check out Zen Server there. So you've got a couple of questions there. I was an LTSP user long ago, back when it was uh, um, early on in the days, before it became, I think, it was Fedora-based, and now it is uh, Ubuntu-based, unless they've moved on from that. I stopped following the project. And the reason I stopped, it's good. It, it's, it's really good. In fact, uh, their, uh, their K12 version of it, K12 LTSP, their tagline was, it free, it's free, it works, duh. And those, <laughs> but those are true. It's free and it works and, and duh, just use it. Um, I stopped using it because of the old saw that, um, you need Windows applications on a system. So, there, there are two reasons I stopped using LTSP. One was I was able to install Puppy Linux and things like it on really low-end machines and get the same thing as a terminal server without a terminal server. I was using old refurbished gear instead of uh, specific terminals. Secondly, everybody wanted Windows. So I, I looked at a way to give you Windows, which is, I think, your first and third questions here. So here's there there every Linux distribution has installed or has available an RDP client. 
Um, yep. It's just there. It's just RDP. And it's the same. It's a reverse engineered protocol that uh, Windows Remote Desktop uses. Here's the way I handled that. I used Poppy Linux, a super thin um, 70 meg, I think at the time it was, install that had one job. It booted up, it loaded the RDP client, and connected to my Windows server. Boom. Anywhere I put that thing, I had a Windows terminal. And um, I spent about $5,000 on a big, beefy Windows server with the RDP licenses. Um, and then from that $5,000, I got about 60 or 70, no, more than that, about 100 computers out of it. So I paid 50 bucks a computer, basically, uh, using old old computers and a small Linux distribution launching directly to RDP. Is there something that can do it over PXE? I don't know. Maybe. I'm, I'm not in that scene anymore. But you can definitely load what... They, they were what I called chubby clients. They weren't thin clients. They weren't fat clients. They were chubby clients. They, they, they were a little overweight. They loaded a really small <laughs> Linux distribution whose only purpose was to take it to Windows. And yeah. I have all that documented. It's super old now. Um, I could send you the documentation if you want. Uh, just email me. Uh, but because it's so super old, I'm sure you can find better documentation now. Um, and that's that's what I would do to answer your questions two and three, or one and three, or whatever they were. Any other yeah, comments? Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, you know, that Mark, you pretty much covered most of it. Um, a lot of this, though, we really don't know what you're trying. What's the problem that you're trying to fix? Um, it seems like you're trying to figure out a way to do a thin client system. And not and be able to still have Windows is what I'm gathering from your questions. Um, and UDO, from what I've been reading, should do the job. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I've never dealt with Ultrio or Utrio or whatever you want to call that silly thing. Um, but yeah, there there really is. Mark, you pretty much covered most of it, Mark. And just so we cover Brent's last or Brent's last thing. Um, Zen server, that's the same thing as uh, Proxmox. They, they use basically the same same system. Yeah, actually, I think Proxmox is built on top of Zen. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, you can also look pretties. at the Linux, yeah, the Linux terminal server project to see if that will answer some of your questions. Well, that's as well. that's the LTSP he mentions in question. Okay. Two. Um, I was looking at some of my old links for this and. Um, I'm going to have to go through and change my bookmarks because some of those <laughs> websites don't exist anymore. It's been a while since I've looked into this. Yeah, it's just not something any of us really are in in you know major use of anymore. Yeah, I just don't um, I just don't see a case. I'm sorry, Chris. I don't see a case for thin clients anymore. Um except maybe tele distance uh work telecommuting um and then, you know, you can you can launch a remote VNC server to do that. Uh, the the case for for I mean you you could make the case. Tell me tell me why you need it and and maybe I'll understand better. But in my experience, by the time you've bought a terminal, um, and a monitor and a keyboard and cabled it all up, you've bought as much as a cheap PC that you can have a real OS on. And you can you yeah. could say something like management is an issue. Well, we throw fog on it and management comes a non-issue. You just re re-image that thing every night 
Um, and then you, you also can pull in there if you're doing a Windows driven group policy. If you spend the time to learn group policy down to the point where you can make it jump, jive, wail, dance a little on attack, um, group policy is another thing that will handle management features if you're staying in the Windows environment. Right. Um, but without more information of what you're trying to solve, we're, we're kind of swinging at blindly here, Brent. Yeah, the uh, the problems that you're addressing really they don't exist anymore because all you any computer any OS can connect and launch and and then client into remote desktop into a terminal server whether it's an actual terminal server or just a server and give you a virtual desktop environment. Um, th- those solutions have become robust and. The only reason to do it now is just like to tinker and see if you can do it yourself. And if that's why you're doing it, I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But, you know, if you're doing that, figuring it out is, I know for me, that's kind of half the fun. So now it, maybe you're trying to get a Windows uh, distributed client without paying for a Windows uh, server. Um, and if, if you're going to do that, it's not legal. Uh, and yep. if that's what Altio is designed to do, and again, I don't know, I, I've only opened it up while reading your email. Um, you're you're going to get busted for that eventually, sooner rather than later. There were some people uh, making selling hardware that did that. You uh, pop four network cards, uh, or excuse me, four video cards into a machine, and it split uh, one Windows XP session into four machines. It was called in computing, and Microsoft slapped them down pretty hard over that. Um, so if if you're going to do it you need a terminal server which is not expensive. In fact, my five like I said my $5,000 machine ran 100 clients and didn't blink. Probably could have run another 100. I just ran out of old base boxes to throw at it. So it doesn't take yeah. a lot and it's not expensive. Um even uh even uh, for just regular folk, it's not all that expensive. I think uh, they're five dollars a license. I think is what I the last time I saw them, or something like that. They aren't very expensive for a terminal service license. Um, now the real trick, if we're going to go there, I brought it up, so I will. Technically, the Linux-based RDP client is isn't legal either, because that five dollar license only gives you the license uh, from a licensed Windows machine to connect to a licensed server. So the RDP is violating that license because you don't have a licensed Windows box attaching to the server. Um, so, you know, again, I'm, I'm just telling you what the law is, or when it's not really the law, what the user agreement that you clicked, I have read and understood, even though you didn't read it and wouldn't understood it if you did read it, that's what that says. Um, so if you choose to flout it, and I don't blame you, I do it all the time, uh, just that's fine. You just need to know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely be careful, and if you are in a place where you need to worry about legalese, um, consult your local lawyer or something just to make sure you're safe. But if you're looking for a Linux then client, lightweight um, OSs kind of make that not necessary anymore, mm-hmm. in my opinion. You can get a full-on graphical interface running on the same hardware that a thin client device would do. A little ARM processor with a gig of RAM, half a gig of RAM, and you can run Puppy Linux and get a full graphical environment. And you hook that with or something. Or not even, 
uh, you, I mean, if you wanted more than what Puppy offers, you can even go to like Lubuntu, or right. if you needed Fedora, you could install Fedora with the LXDE uh, environment. So there are lots of options. Without your user case scenario, it's hard to even poke holes in it without knowing more. Uh, we're just kind of stabbing in the dark. All right, Brent, you're, you're approaching co-host status, so we're going to move on now. Um, if that didn't answer your questions, ask again, and we'll take another stab at it. Uh, but those are our thoughts. So now on to the tech news, um, and we're doing well, guys. We're only half hour into the show. Usually we do spend a half an hour talking about Kung Fury, but uh, we're moving <laughs> right along. Um, Ubuntu. Yeah, and when I was... Go ahead, I was going to say, when I was when I did my search of the news, um, which was a few days ago, it was pretty light. Well, you so, know, it's uh, the end of the year. Yeah, there was a lot of best of stories, and these are our top, you know, two or three or ten stories of the year. But as far as new computer news, there wasn't a lot. So slim news section you know not that that has any bearing to the amount of time we'll spend on it but <laughs> you know we don't need anything to talk for a long time but there's just there there's not go. many stories uh, if we need to cut some uh, recently google got into some trouble about chrome storing its passwords in plain text turns out the ubuntu os doing the same dang thing yeah um ubuntu somebody uh, stumbled over the fact that Network Manager by default stores Wi-Fi profiles, including clear text passwords, um, under the ETC folder rather than encrypted in the user folder. And, of course, the Ubuntu developers point out that, well, this is an issue because you might have more than one user on the machine and they all want to be able to connect to the network. So, and if you follow the link and... Um, uh, that we post in the story notes, it goes in and basically you can uncheck the all users may connect to this network option whenever you're setting up the um, wireless profile and that will store it, um, that'll store it under that user profile um, and kind of uh, secured rather than just open text and clear. So yeah, Chrome isn't the only one who does it. Ubuntu is doing the same thing now. Here's my take on this. The only person who can do this is somebody who has physical access to your machine or has broken into your machine remotely such that they have the same level of access as they would have physically. You don't own that box anymore. It doesn't matter yeah. where the passwords are stored at that point. This is this is a tempest in a teapot, the same thing as the Google story was. Anybody who can see these passwords already has access to way more than your Wi-Fi password. And there's more things to worry about than the Wi-Fi password. Um, well, what about it's, it's almost a non-story. Yeah, what about just throw out a random scenario, put on my tinfoil visor <laughs> here and go to town. Uh suppose you've got your Ubuntu laptop and you are at a Starbucks surfing the free Wi-Fi and somebody is checking out with their fire sheep or whatever and says, oh, well, he is connected. And then rather than looking through your encrypted user folder, they know, oh, I can check here. And, oh, look, this is his home network password, and this is his work network password that he wasn't supposed to connect to. Yeah, but to. if your C and drive, now, if your not C drive, that's Windows world. If your share is open so that they can get to it over the Wi-Fi, you're already owned. None of that matters. Yeah, yeah it, it's a mute point because at that point it's over. The the game was over when they first took over the machine. Okay, here's a scenario I can see where this is bad. 
Okay, my son is 16 years old and has gotten into some trouble uh, uh, with hacking, and so he's banned from the internet. And I don't want him to have the Wi-Fi password uh, so that he can attach his other devices. He still has a device, but he's not. He's banned from the Wi-Fi, and so now he can can sneak up to my machine and look into the the etc folder and find the wi-fi password and he knows it and he can hook up his devices now i went a long way to get to a scenario that frankly isn't all that bad anyway well that's the only thing i could come up with where this would actually be a problem yeah but mark it's the end of the year and there's not many news stories <laughs> out there <laughs> no the thing is i'm not blaming you seth i'm blaming the fact that it even is a news story but like you said, it's yeah. the end of the year, and they're trying to come up with something. Um, here's another thing that's not news. BlackBerry sucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, poor BlackBerry. They lost um, $4.4 billion last quarter. Last quarter. <laughs> last quarter. Um, How can I don't they be understand. still running? I don't know. They only shipped 1.9 million smartphones. It's a billion um, and a half and dollars a month. A billion and a half a month. Um. So yeah, I want their loss revenue. Could you imagine what we could do with that? Yeah. Here's the thing. They lost 2.6 billion on unsold BlackBerry 10 devices. So now that they've written those off, they need to dump them on the market for like five or 10 bucks a piece. And then, you know, Ubuntu wants some touch devices. <laughs> now they can, or, you know, somebody could take import Mego to the uh, BlackBerry 10 hardware set. And then you will have a decent hardware that you can pick up for cheap because nobody wants one with BlackBerry on it. So now that they've written the loss, off they can have a nice little profit next quarter to uh, whimper out their shareholders and give the ceo a big send-off and they can finally die so this is blackberry's death spiral i think and the article has a positive spin on it blackberry has teamed up with foxconn for budget smartphones um so now blackberry isn't going to be doing the hardware anymore they're going to be focusing on software and innovation so yay I'm, I'm sure this is a big win for foxconn they're like yeah you know we'll we'll give you two or three um literally two or three phones and wait wait okay ba- back that up Seth. i'm sorry i was i was producing the show and i missed that blackberry isn't going to focus on hardware and it's going to focus on software innovation basically they're not going to be making the hardware now they've kind of they've outsourced it to fox okay here's the problem with that the only thing blackberry did well was the hardware it was their software that sucked they had excellent phones great keyboards their hardware was outstanding they couldn't put software on them that's totally backwards yep but see now they can concentrate on the software and make it better because they don't have to worry about producing hardware anymore mark they're trying to fix what's broken and you can't fix what's broken if you don't focus on it so (laughs) everything is wrong with up is down and right is left and the sun now rises in the west i don't understand blackberry's gonna focus on software I don't understand That's how you can lose four point four billion dollars a quarter in <laughs> And how do you t- how do you take somebody who lost a billion and a half a month? A billion and a half a month. That's oh gosh, I can't even do the math. Three hundred three seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars a a week? Something to that effect? How do you take that company and say, We're gonna put you in charge of anything? Any Well no. 
you've taken something away from them. You've taken so see now they have less responsibility. So oh. they only have instead of focusing on hardware and manufacturing the software, or uh, focusing on software and manufacturing the hardware, they don't have to manufacture the hardware anymore. They can just innovate and develop. But they were and- only good at hardware. <laughs> They sucked at innovation. If they could have innovated, they there never would have been an iPhone. Yeah. Well, and again, Mark, here's the thing. Obviously, you and I don't know how to lose $4.4 <laughs> billion in a quarter and stay in business. So we've missed something here. Good point. Good point. Definitely a good point. <laughs> they had $4.4 billion to lose. Oh, Obviously, they had more because they're still there. All right, moving on to the next news story that isn't a news story. At least it's an interesting story. Uh, and that's a, a story about um, uh, a new side channel. It's not a new side. It's actually a very old side channel attack that is recently making the news. And that is that by listening to the mechanical components of a computer with just a plain old microphone, you can de- you can figure out what the computer is doing and thereby decrypt information. Is that a good synopsis, Seth? Yeah. Um, basically, if you know the unencrypted, like say somebody receives an encrypted email and they unencrypt that email, if you know what the email said beforehand, you can see um, based on how the computer functions and how many CPU, um, how much of the CPU is done and all that, you can deduct or deduce the cipher that was used and then you would know their cipher text and you could go through and be privy to the other emails that you did not send them. So, um, so, so here's how this works in a nutshell. You, um, switching the switching power supply in any machine, a hardware, a, a desktop or a laptop, but it's bigger in a, in a desktop. Um, depending on what the machine is doing has to supply more current or less current. And by doing that, it, spins up and spins down so to speak not literally spins if you know the hardware if you say i know this hardware set and i have tested this hardware set and i know when i give it this task to do it makes these sounds then you can listen for those sounds on that exact hardware set somewhere else and know that it's doing that task so you have to have a lot of information to start with and then it's a very low bandwidth uh attack because you know it's just a the speed at which the 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 power supply changes or the hard drive grinds there's there's a number of things there that you can measure and you build a fingerprint of all of that but then you have to listen to it with you know a microphone um and then there's the distance there because these are really high frequency sounds uh so they they tend to dissipate quickly you know anytime they hit anything so you got to be pretty close so it really is um you have to know a lot and you have to be really close but technically, it is possible to hack somebody with nothing more than a microphone and a, several creepy, PhDs. Though? Yeah, they've done it, it with a distances of like four meters. So you could be 13 foot away. And, you know, so imagine you're like in a, in a meeting with somebody. You can place your cell phone next to that computer or further down the table. Um, and then, like I say, you send them an email, an encrypted email. And when they decrypt it, you figure out the ciphertext because you knew what it was beforehand and you know 
how the um, decryption runs, and it would do that. But I figure a very easy way to defeat this would be to do something like, um, you know, edit, uh, just have some movie playing, like some flash file that is very graphic or very processor intensive, just launch that muted while the decryption is running and then you've totally thrown off True. the baseline and they would never be able to figure it out so it was an interesting story um you know because it, it is a way to bypass security because it doesn't matter how secure you're um how secure you know you're using a four thousand um a four thousand I cannot talk today, but you know, uh, you have 4,000 digits. You're using uppercase, lowercase numbers and symbols, non-repeating variable that changes every hour. You still have to enter it sometime and they don't even need to guess it. They can just look, Oh, okay. Look, it was a, the hard drive spun down here. The processor over a uh, clock there, the power supply went down there. Okay. This here was his cipher text based on that. And then once you figure out, what the cipher key was for one thing, you know what the cipher key is for everything. Yes. If you already know a whole lot. Right. <laughs> yeah, you kind of have to have a, a good chunk of knowledge already. But it's a very interesting project, right. and it's uh, it's kind of spooky to see that yeah, yeah they it, can side-channel you without, without even really touching your machine. Yeah, it, this would definitely like this wouldn't be just some random guy. But if you were targeted, if you were targeting one specific right. person, that's when something like this would be uh, very effective. So the NSA isn't using this to steal your particular uh, cipher key, but you know, a a competing company could go after the CEO of their main rival. Um, you know, and use this as a way to get into their stuff. So, you know, very much spear phishing and not kind of just, uh, you know, casting the net out there. Yeah. It's, it's state level espionage. It's, it's, uh, you know, Jack Ryan stuff, but it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, moving on Google, uh, because East Texas judges and, uh, juries, juries have proven to be such nitwits they're going on the offense so that they don't get dragged into Texas. I don't blame them. Yeah. Um, you know, we've talked about the Rockstar Consortium um, and, you know, basically being a what in the lingo is called patent troll and that they don't produce anything. They just own patents and threaten to sue people. Um, Google is charging them rather than kind of has a countersuit. Um, and so rather than... Um, because Rockstar has its business, they have a suite in Plano, Texas, but substantial majority of its employees, including senior management, are based in uh, Canada. And it's uh, so basically Google says, ah, we're going to sue you first and we're going to do it here in California. And that's uh, one of the things that um, Google is doing. They're trying to get them in California where hopefully they'll run across somebody with some uncommon sense because there doesn't seem to be many of those people in Marshall. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Marshall. Well, hey, you know, I apologize. This is one time where I apologize for being from Texas because those people were just freaking morons and they had no business listening to the case. If they, I mean, you know, I, I could, my mom, I think, my mom and dad could have listened to that case and came up with the correct verdict. So I don't know. 
I don't know. And uh, we've been talking about the ongoing saga with Newegg and uh, their patent troll issues, and uh, they were handed a feat, and they said that they would appeal, and good news, they won! Just not that case. Yes, they... um this is a different case, but, you know, Google was in the news, especially last month, whenever the, 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 I just, I hate to claim them as Texans. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I apologize again on behalf of the at least semi-intelligent people in the state uh, about what the jury did there. But yes, they won. Um, this was a case where Google or where Newegg had lost, but um, they appealed and in the appeal Basically, they won everything, and the and the um, ITC, the International Trade Commission, looked at the case and goes, "You're right. That was a stupid verdict. You win." Uh, and so Newegg won everything. Now, um, the other company, TQP Development, which is another patent holding company, um, you know, who basically says no, T- um, TQP anybody- TQP is the one they lost to recently. TPL is the new one. TPL says, we own card readers. If you've ever sold or made a card reader, you owe us money. Yes, and uh, basically the... um, the case it's it's one of those dry technical detail cases but the itc basically looked at the patents and go um those can't be infringed upon because the mq's products don't perform mapping the way they're described in the patent so it's just because something does something it has to do it in a specific way to be covered by a patent. And they ruled that uh, what this, the way this does it is totally different than what the patents describe. Therefore, they are not guilty of infringement. Therefore, you have no case. Uh, therefore, there is no verdict against them. And so it's good to know that a little bit of, of common sense and knowledge prevailed in this case. And uh, if you ever find yourself in a case and you want to have some knowledge, the Linux Academy is the place to get that knowledge. How was that? Was that okay? It was a stretch. That was a good one. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> was good. I mean, it was great words, but it didn't kind of it fit. It didn't make any so. sense at all, but I tried. Uh, so our good friends over at the LinuxAcademy.com are once again kicking off the new year, 2014, by sponsoring us, and we thank them for that. We had a great partnership in 2013. Look forward to a great partnership in 2014. Partnership being we send, they get, give us money, we can give them students. It's a win-win. It really is. And another is. win-win is the Linux Academy itself. Really, just go there and you'll understand. I am more passionate about this than I was about Kung Fury. And you know how passionate I was about that. The <laughs> Linux Academy offers step-by-step training uh, video courses. Video courses taught by real people, real experts in the field who actually know their stuff. And they have uh, modules designed to take you from being a Linux novice to a Linux administrator. Think about that. From novice to administrator just by watching some videos. Good grief, that must be a lot of videos. Yes, it is. Over 200 of them. Um, any, uh, thousands of hours. I don't know. I made that number up. Of video. Lots and lots of hours of video. But not just video. They give you PDF study guides that go along with it. If you're a paper kind of person and you like to hold something and read something, you can do that. Print that sucker out. Have it right there with you. Reference back to it uh, as you go. Um, they have... Uh, 
quizzes and and pre-tests, practice exams. Why would you want a practice exam? Because you can take their learning, their modules. Take, for example, the LPIC Level 1 module. Complete that. Do everything from beginning to end. Take every test, take every quiz, master it, and you'll know you've done that by using the lesson browser, which tracks all your progress, tells you what you've done and what you need to do and what the scores were on what your tests were. When you've done all that, take a practice exam. When you're done with that practice exam, you can go get your LPIC Level 1 certification. How do I know that? Because people are doing it every day. People are using the LinuxAcademy.com to begin brand new careers. Uh, we have a listener here who's uh, uh, written in a few times. He's a truck driver. He doesn't want to be a truck driver anymore. He wants to be a Linux administrator. He's using the LinuxAcademy.com to do that. We love that. We love to hear that our listeners are going there and getting outstanding service because we believe in these guys. We believe in Anthony and his, his crew over there. And you know what? They believe in you. They will respond to your questions. If you say, hey, I don't know about this. I want to know about this. They'll get together. If they think it's a good idea, there'll be a video in the next few days about it or, or maybe a whole course. The, the whole LPIC thing started because somebody asked for it. And they're responsive and they listen. And what are you going to pay for all this amazingness? How about a buck? What can you get for a buck these days? You can't even get a taco at Taco Bell anymore for a buck. By the time they throw on tax, it's like a buck oh eight. Yeah. But yeah, you can't go to the dollar menu for a dollar. That's right. So, so for a buck, you can get two weeks of learning. That's your two-week uh, trial. I started to say your two-week free trial for a dollar. Your two-week trial uh, at Linux Academy will cost you a dollar. Why a dollar? Just so that you can show that you actually have some money and an account and are willing to use it. And you get in there and you try things out. you got 14 days to poke around. Look at videos. Download PDFs. Uh, uh, use the lesson browser. See what's there. And when you're done with your two weeks, we're sure you're going to want to keep going. So what happens when you keep going? How about $19 a month? $19 a month. That's just enough to save a starving kid in Africa, as I understand it. Um, or you can, wow, that was a bad comparison. Or you can uh, learn Linux for $19 a month. But you know what? Because everything is cheaper when you buy it in bulk. If you buy a quarter, three months, you'll only pay for two months. $38 for a quarter of the Linux Academy. By, by, by the time you've had three months there, you will probably have enough information to start a new career. But you know what? It doesn't stop there. You're going to want to keep paying because even if you've done all the modules and all the courses and seen every video and taken every test, you're still going to want to have access to that awesome forum in the background and the chat rooms and all the Q&A that goes on between other students and between the instructors and their students. And you're going to want to keep that going. And so you can keep that going indefinitely at 38 bucks a quarter. So that works well, out And too. the good thing about that, Mark, about keeping it going, it's not like he did these videos and has moved on to other projects there are new videos coming out and has the things change uh you know the way you do things change like you know when i got in the technology field 10 years ago the stuff i learned and mastered and spent lots of money to learn is now obsolete so i've had to learn new stuff along the way and i just want to break in here and talk about the ridiculous deal that the pricing is I found a magazine or a link to a story on PCWorld.com. So this isn't some, you know, fly-by-night thing. PC World, you know, very reputable website. You can find lots of great information there. They listed 12 places that you can learn Linux. And I'm kind of bummed because the Linux Academy isn't on here. But they have one site is $67 a month. 
Another site prices begin at fourteen hundred. Another site prices start at one hundred dollars. Another site prices for virtual classes or two thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars. Online pricing starts at six hundred and seventy five dollars. Here's one that's only ninety nine dollars. Um, here's one for a free technology academy price per course is about $517. So if you search online for Linux learning or you know Linux training or Linux skills or Linux certification, they are out there and you look and see how much stuff costs. If you go here and you think, well, the Linux Academy is cheap, there must be cheap quality. No, what he does would easily stand side by side against what these other classes offer. And you can learn. And the great thing about it you know, it's not some instructor thing. You've got to learn this today and this today and that tomorrow. You can stop the video. You can go back. You can do it again. There are study guides. They're available for um, email. They're available for chat. There's a learning community that's there. You get a great, great value uh, for your buck. You get a big bang for a little buck. There you go. I emailed Anthony before the show and said, hey, do you want to do an ad this week? And uh, and he said, sure. He got two ads in a row right there. He got my ad plus Seth's <laughs> ad. And, uh, and Nordic, who's in the chat room right now, says he's a butcher who doesn't want to cut meat for a living. He wants to become a Linux administrator. So he's going to use uh, the LinuxAcademy.com to do that. So, cool. Um, there's Very another awesome. person that really happens. That they, These are real people who really do this. I'm not making them up. I'm not that creative. So check it out, linuxacademy.com. Tell them we sent you. How do you do that? There's a referral box when you sign up. Type in Everyday Linux there, and they'll say, hey, we know those guys, and we'll thank you for it. Looking forward to another great uh, year with uh, Linux Academy and uh, looking forward to what they do. They're going to do some awesome stuff. Can't wait to see what they do in the new year. You know, they've done a lot It'll be great. in the last year. They've added. Yeah, they have grown. Um, I don't. Somebody do a quick search. When did we interview Anthony? The Linux Academy didn't exist uh, before. Well, actually, it was just coming into existence when we when we interviewed Anthony. That was in 2013, early on, I think, like February. So in less than a year, three. What's that? Episode 83. Episode, Episode 83. 83. So um, to the, uh, February 20th of this year of last year. 83 2013. Okay, awesome. So there you go. Um, so in less than a year, they've really grown, and they're going to keep growing. But their yeah, prices they, aren't I get growing. a lot more. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think we should bring him back on for an once. update. Yeah, we could do that. And in fact, we told Anthony when he was on the show to raise the price. We, we said, dude, you're, charging, you're not charging enough. Yeah, And he did. We and did. So... Why? Because we want it to be a viable thing for a long time. And you can't do that unless you're making money. So go give the guy some money. Yeah. We'll we'll have to try and ping Anthony and see if he'll come back on, yeah. at least for an update show. I think it'd be a good thing to see, after, you know, maybe a yearly check-in to see how it's all going. All right, and it's now time to move on to our actual discussion topic. Only an hour in. We're doing great, guys. This is only going to be a two-and-a-half-hour show. Awesome. Um, no, I really have Sweet. no idea how long this discussion will take, but I think it's going to be fascinating. And so here we go. Uh, these are just, we're just going to kind of 
go off the top of our heads here. Some dates that Seth and I came up with, some anecdotes uh, that go along with those dates. Um, of course, the early communication, you can go all the way back to smoke signals and drums, right? Tribal drums. Those are telecommunications. Yep. That's communicating with somebody at a dif- distance. But we're going to focus on electronic medium. And, and one of the earliest methods of that was in, in uh, 1809, a, a German guy by the name of Samuel, Samuel Thomas von Sommering um, invented one of the earliest telegraphs known to man. And it was uh, wires uh, dipped into glass tubes full of acid. Uh, and you apply a current uh, at one end of the wire, and the current travels down the wire to the glass tube full of acid, and the current in the acid makes a bubble. Well, there was a bubble that represented every letter of the alphabet plus some punctuation. There were 35 or 36, depending on which model, different bubbles, uh, different tubes. So just like a keyboard, you push a button, and uh, the, the push E, and the corresponding bubble labeled E, the uh, corresponding tube starts to bubble. Um, and so the guy writes down E, and then the, you type Q, and the Q starts to bubble. And you type U, and the U starts to bubble. It was slow. It was not really practical. It was very expensive because you had to have all those glass tubes and all the acid, and it could only travel a short distance. But it was the first time it actually happened. I don't think anybody ever did anything commercial with it. Uh, but it was an, it was the idea of somebody uh, saying, how can I push a button here and make something happen there? 1809. Uh, 30, just under 30 years later, Samuel Morse uh, refined that design with the, the now famous uh, two-piece design. There's a send and receive. Um, and he he's, was the first to use digital um, signaling. It was yeah. it was analog, but he used binary code, dots and dashes instead of ones and zeros. But he invented his own binary system for communicating. So Morse code, uh, which is still around today, even though telegraphs of his design are not, the code still exists. Every ham operator, every military uh, person, I don't know if it's still required for military, but it, has, it was up until very recently, if it's not, uh, learns Morse code. Yeah. And if you wanted to, there's some neat videos on the internet where back when texting was, you know, if you wanted an A, if you wanted a C, you had to press one three times yeah. and all that. They had contests where um, it would be Morse code against texting to see who was the fastest. And usually um, the Morse code people won. So it, it was viable up until the point you got full keyboards on the phone for like speed of right. signal, um, which it, it was pretty neat. And here is an anecdotal story pulled from my dad's vast repertoire of knowledge. Um, in the civil war, when they were going through, you know, and on the march and on the advance and they were running tele or telegraph wires, the way they would take the signals is guys would um, put the wires in their mouth and based on the shock they would get would be the dosh or the dat and they would write it down on their pad. So they didn't have time and it was too mobile to set up the little um, whatever that device is called. So they just stuck the two wires in their mouth and, you know, and it's not, it's not a super, uh, it's not a super bad shock. It's just kind of like a nine volt battery to the tongue. You know, you could do that all day if you wanted to. Um, but you know, if you needed, if you needed a battlefield message from, you know, um, half a mile away, you know, just, and he's sitting there with two wires and he's saying, and then he rips off the page and hands it to him and then going back. So it's, it was, you know, and pretty neat. So, 
And this model it was what I was talking about last week, the two-wire model. One signal, one ground, and that's it. And all telecommunications still use that model. It's been refined over the years, but that that's it. I'm sending you something, uh, and you have a ground wire, and you're sending me something, and I have a ground wire. That's it. Yep. Yeah. Um, that That's crazy. Cat 5 cable is just four pairs of that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So. Um, so, yeah. So, okay, moving right along uh, from Samuel Morris, uh, a few uh, years later, about 30 years later, um, the first transatlantic cable was laid. And that's a big deal. It was still telegraphed, right? But now you could send a message without relays from uh, New York to London. That's a big deal. Wow. It used to take yeah. months to get a message from New York to London. Now you can do yeah. it in minutes. You know, the yeah, the fastest ships, you were probably looking at a month to get something there and a month to get something back. So if, if you're wanting, you know, to talk, you know, imagine financing or you're trading stocks, you know, I want you to buy a thousand shares on the London stock exchange based on this. Well, by the time the news gets there in a month and it's suppose he didn't understand, did you mean 10,000 shares? I couldn't tell if that last thing was a zero. <laughs> then it's, instead of one month, it's three months for him to execute that trade and how much, how old is the information that's being executed then so yeah 1866 think about that 30 years i mean uh, less than 150 years ago the first transatlantic cable was laid cutting the time from uh weeks and days to just mere minutes to be able to get something across uh across the pond so to speak i don't have any data on this i don't know what the latency of that is i don't know what the round trip speed is but it is on the it's on the order of minutes, not seconds, uh, because again you have to. Uh, it's it's an analog signal. It's not digital, and it's using electrical uh, uh, power, so it has to be um, boosted uh, along as it goes. Uh, and so they had relay boosters that did that. And in fact, that technology is still used today, even with fiber optics. They have relay boosters along the way because the the light signal dies out before it gets there you're talking three thousand miles <laughs> they laid a piece of wire three thousand miles over an ocean and hooked it up to a telegraph on either end of it that's that's kind of cool to me and it worked yes probably not the first time i bet you there was a couple of issues getting it to work the first time right. but I'm, i bet you eventually i'm it's kind of cool i'm sure salt water uh, made itself known during that time <laughs> But a mere 10 years later, Alexander Graham Bell was trying to uh, – he had actually um, a, a charter to create a, a better telegraph. He was looking for an automated telegraph system, and that's what he had been given money for. Uh, but he said, you know what? I've got this other side project that I'm working on um, that could do a voice. And, and the, the famous Watson, come here, I need you, which happened in 1876, once that happened, he knew – he was going to abandon the whole telegraph thing because it was it was over. So I had yeah. to look this up. I don't know how a tele, didn't know how an old telephone worked. I had to look it up. It's actually pretty cool. So here's the way it goes. There's a a, a diaphragm, just a, a piece of metal. Um, um, it could be anything, but uh, at the time they used uh, like foil. And behind that is a small cup full of grains of carbon. So you talk into the foil. And it vibrates the grains of carbon. The carbon then separate and and um, and compress based on the wave. That changes the electromagnetic field of 
the the grains of carbon. That is then turned into current, which is sent over uh, the wire to another um, diaphragm. But this time, there's not grains of carbon. This time, the wires are hooked up directly to the carbon. And because the grains of carbon are now mimicking the signal of the voice, uh, as it vibrates the diaphragm, the, the way it vibrates is the same vibrations that came through on the first diaphragm. So huh. the one diaphragm is a microphone. The other diaphragm is a speaker. And the grains of carbon and the wire are just a way of transmitting away from one place to another. And that's still how it works. If you pick up an old like princess telephone at your grandma's house, that's still how it works. It's still a diaphragm. We've improved the, the quality of the diaphragm. It's still grains of carbon, and it's still a couple of wires. That's it. Super cool uh, that he came up with this, and it was tinny, and it you know didn't sound very good, but it worked, and you could convey real voice over a distance. And then they they you know as they worked it out, they figured we could use all the existing telegraph lines that are already there. We don't have to lay new lines. We can just take the telegraph out, stick a telephone in, boom, done. Which leads us to only two years later, Seth's yeah. story. Yeah, the first phone switch was invented and installed in 1878. And this happened in Kansas City. And there was an undertaker by the name of Alan, Alman Brown Stauger, S-T-R-O-W-G-E-R. And the reason he invented this was to save his business. There were two undertakers in the city, um, his and his... Um, competition the problem is the competition's wife ran the switchboard so when somebody called the operator and said hey could you connect me to the undertaker who's she going to connect it to her husband or the other guy so all the calls <laughs> were going to her husband's um undertaking business and not almonds so he had he had the brainstorm to come up with a switch that what they would do is they would mount a switch in front of the uh, switchboard and there would be two wires going out into each undertaker's slot. And then every time you plug the phone in, it would switch whether it went to almonds or his competitors. So every other one was going there. So that way it made the business fair and equitable. And it bears technically no resemblance to the switches that are used today, but he made a lot of money off of the <laughs> idea. Um, be, and it, because it was a way now you didn't have to know, you know, all the different undertakers. You just, you know, you had these switches and it would just has a way to automate. It was kind of like, well, it, it was a way to cut down the amount of work required by the switchboard operators. And so it all happened because an undertaker in Kansas City was going broke because his competition's wife ran the local switchboard. Um, that's what started the phone switch. I thought it was a pretty cool story. That is a neat yeah, that's story. interesting. And I think I left out, by the way, in my riffing on the phone thing, I said that the wires are connected to a diaphragm. They're connected to an electromagnet which then converts the electrical currents into um, pulling the diaphragm or pushing the diaphragm, and that's what makes the waves. I left out that. That's kind of a big part. So as the, the electricity uh, energizes or de-energizes the magnet, the diaphragm moves and the mimics the exact same wave that was on the other end. Didn't want to be imprecise there. Too late, yeah. Mark. They already sent the email. <laughs> yeah, um, the little that's going to get us already. Yes, the little that. <laughs> Um, I, I, by the way, that copyright Molly Wood for a literal net. I love that phrase. 
Um, <laughs> and I threw this one in there. It doesn't really fit anything else, but it's gonna it's gonna come into play later. In 1894, a fellow by the name of Marconi um, began developing wireless analog communications. Um, uh, actually, he was locked in a battle with uh, with the internet darling Tesla. Uh, but Marconi is the one who got the patent and is generally credited with it, although I think they went back later and posthumously awarded it to Tesla. But here, the history books say Marconi, so that's what I'm going with. Um, and his idea was to take the telegraph and make it wireless uh, using the, the exact same uh, technologies. But it, it wasn't digital, it was analog. Um, and famously, the uh, the. Uh, Titanic, when it went down, was one of the first to use the SOS signal instead of the CQD uh, over the Marconi wireless. Uh, so that's mm. just right there in that uh, time frame. Um, but going back to cable, 1903. Okay, so now we have jumped uh, uh, from 1809 to 1903. So just under 100 years now uh, from our first telegraph, we're still using telegraphs. Um, and and also telephones. Right now, they're still sort of fighting it out. But the first Trans-Pacific cable was open to traffic. So we had the Transatlantic cable in uh, 1866. It wasn't until 1903 that we had a Trans-Pacific cable. Yeah, and I use this one as my uh, history thing a few weeks ago. Um, it was actually laid earlier on like in december of 1902 but it wasn't open to transmission publicly until january the 1st 1903 and it was just between san francisco and honolulu because they hadn't got the rest of it laid there you know there wasn't one giant cable that went from california to china it went to like hawaii and then it went to guam or midway and guam and finally to the philippines and then from the philippines to china so it was done in legs like that and as they got the different legs in, it got communication that much further across the Pacific. So in early 1903, if you wanted to transmit something from San Francisco to Japan, it had to go across America and then across the Atlantic and then across Europe. And from Europe, it either went to Russia over to China or it went down uh, into India across the Indian Ocean to like the Korean Peninsula and then back up. So all of that was a long way to get a message across. So, But you might ask, why did it take 40 years to lay the Trans-Pacific Cable? Well, for one thing, what Seth just described, there was already a method that worked. Secondly, it's a big dang ocean. Yes. Yeah. Very big. And Too and the big. thing is, the company that did it, um, I, I don't the Trans-Pacific Cable Company, it was like three companies joined together because it was such a massive undertaking it was simply it was too big of a job to be done by any company that existed at the time that's that's why it didn't happen before and the first message was uh, july 4th the red letter day in american history 1903 uh the first official message was from the president roosevelt uh to the president of the cable company uh and huh. yeah who was he was standing right beside him, but they just kind of did it as a way to do it. Uh, the message was given to the operator at eleven twenty three 
and it was received by Mr. Mackey at 11.35. So it took like 12 minutes to make the circuit of the world. Um, and the message, which is, according to the history books, is congratulations and success to the Pacific Cable, which the genius of your lamented father and your own enterprise made possible, Theodore Roosevelt. And in his reply, which went the other direction, was dispatched at 11.55, and it was received by 12.04.30. So it took nine and a half minutes to make the round trip. So there, to go entirely around the world and come back, it was like a 45-minute deal because, you know, you had to then – you had to get the dee 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 converted to text, and then you had to formulate your reply, and then the dee 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 all the way across, and then converting it to text. And there were like relay stations where somebody would receive it and then go tap it in. So that's why it wasn't instantaneous, but now you could get around the world. You could get a message literally around the world in less than 10 minutes. Pretty cool stuff. And that, what you just described, Seth, is why 30 years after the telephone was invented, they were still using telegraphs. The lag was such that a voice conversation would have been useless. The telegraph was still holding on because the the telephone technology, while it could technically go that far, it it wasn't useful. Uh, So telephones were used for local communications, uh, city to city and within cities, uh, and for larger communications, um, even from San Francisco to New York, wouldn't have been a telephone call. It would have been a cable. It would have been a, a telegram. Um, and it wasn't until much later that those uh, processes got home to the point where you could have a phone conversation. Okay, moving on. Yeah, and, oh, go ahead. Yeah, sir. go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, that's something that even, um, you know, I think back to when I was a kid, talking to someone around the world was to the other side of the world was very difficult because there was still a lag. Now, granted the lag wasn't seven minutes. It was like seven seconds, but you know, you can't say, Hey, how are you doing? And then count to, and then it's basically 15 seconds before you get a reply back. So you're like, Hey, did you hear me? And then, you know, you get to, yes, uh, 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 and you get to where you're not making communication because, you can't understand because you can't carry on a conversation when there's a 30 second break between every time you say something. And that isn't, that isn't your grandfather's. That's the people doing this podcast when we were young, that was the state of communication. And 110 years after this, you can now have a video conversation on the phone in your pocket via Skype with somebody on the other side of the world in real time. And we complain when there's a, a, a delay of a second or so, and it gets annoying. Right. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to the next thing, we're going to jump all the way up to the 1940s because that's when things got digital. A fellow by the name of George Stitbits first used an existing teletype technology to create a remote computing terminal. So he had a teletypes were in use back then. They were dumb terminals at that point. Again, the, all the computers were mainframes then. Nothing. Um, um, desktop by any means uh and they were still largely punch card but there were teletypes the teletype was a way to uh get information into the computer that was more efficient than a punch card uh and and of course there was a printer hooked up at the other end for the computer's output even though they were still using punch cards these things these peripherals existed so george stitbits uh, hooked up a teletype to a mainframe and sent a message to another mainframe that printed that message out on a printer. Uh, And then somebody at the other end did the same thing. So it was the first remote 
telepresence uh, in 1940. That's cool, though. That's pretty dang cool. Way back then. Yeah. So that you know that was the 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 great great grandson uh, father of the internet. Um, in 1994, excuse me, 1954, uh, on July 21st, the for, first satellite transmission was used. But the satellite is an interesting uh, choice. Yeah, I thought this was uh, pretty neat. It was the first uh, satellite transmission of voice, but it was using the moon. You know, we think of satellites today being these little metallic basketball things flying around in orbit, but they originally used the moon and they realized they got far better clarity than whenever they were using the ionosphere. And since the moon was higher up, you had a greater distance you could go to as well. So they so, yeah, used the moon. That. They used the moon like a giant mirror and they bounced a radio signal up to the moon. Waited for it. I think it's about three light minutes. I'm not exactly sure what that is. Um, somebody on the internet will correct me. Waited for those <laughs> waves to bounce back down to the Earth, and based on the angle of declination, and uh, they could figure out where it was going to go. And they used the moon as their mirror in the sky. Cool. <laughs> so just a few years after we used the the moon as the first satellite, the Russians launched the first artificial satellite, Sputnik. Now, this was a seminal moment in world history because, you know, the the height of the Cold War, none of us uh, listening to this podcast most likely were alive back then, and if we were, we were kids. Um, uh, Sputnik launched a satellite about the size of a basketball, as Seth said, into space. That was a big deal because that satellite passed over America. And the rest of the world, right? But the U.S. authority said if they can put something the size of the basketball into space and pass it over America, well, a nuclear bomb isn't a whole lot bigger than a basketball. They could put a bomb yeah. on that sucker. And they could set its orbit to decay over the U.S. And they could drop a bomb on us from space. And so the American military pretty much went nuts and threw money and resources into creating a distributed network. So the idea here was to keep our information safe. They knew they couldn't keep the people safe. They wanted to keep the information safe. Prior to that time, all the information was like in the CI building in Langley, Virginia, or the FBI building. We had our information in physical locations. Yes, we had computers by 1957. We had uh, uh, mainframes, and we had data uh, I don't think we were, maybe tapes by then, I don't remember, but certainly punch cards. But we it was all in one place, and it was difficult and expensive to move it from one place to another. So when the, when the Russians launched Sputnik, the Americans' response was to invent something that would make the, the bomb that they knew would be dropped in eventually. They knew it was just going to happen. It was inevitable to minimize right. its effect on our information. So they created this decentralized bomb-proof data storage system. Now, this is cool because this is where the whole concept of packet switching and not specifically declaring where things go because in the event of that bomb drop, you can't know which connection is active and which connection isn't. You have to let the data itself figure out how to get from one place to another. This was huge. This changed everything, all because of that little basketball was flown over space in 1957. It's absolutely amazing. I think that's what it, that's what caused 
everything to go the way it did. Yeah, so we can really thank the Russians for our uh, great technological advantage. <laughs> well, so, and they can thank know, themselves for Russia. It. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. they, they, they certainly benefit from the internet too. And so, um, guys went into and and I I could pull out all sorts of stuff, but I, I'm assuming that our audience is basically familiar with internet history. If not, let me know. I would love to do a show. I am salivating to do a show on the history of the internet. It's something I've researched extensively, um, just because it's so cool. And the the idea of of headers of putting of of putting information inside information metadata for the first time was digitized, and and the the whole routing routing tables I am aware of these routes and I get to choose on my own where I send data based on what I see going on and all of this is happening in a chip with like four K of RAM, it it's just phenomenal what they did and how quickly they did it from nineteen fifty seven. When the internet was when DARPA and DARPAnet was first started, to early 1990s, so 30 years, 35 um, ish, when AOL came online and Americans were were hearing, "You've got mail." Okay, and so we're now 150 years from the time the telephone was created. Now, 30 years later, we're going from still the telephone to to you've got mail. All because of that little basketball that launched over the U.S. Yeah, it's a game. It was a game changer, and it's Indeed. it's amazing when you look back at it. Okay, move. I'm going to get off my soapbox now. Sultan of the soapbox. That's that's what they call me. I like it. I'm sticking with it. So anyway, moving on. 1960, the first satellite was used solely for communications, but it was not a satellite you might be familiar with today. Yes, um, it was uh, called Echo One, and it was a. This was again because of how expensive it was. This was a huge deal partnered between corporations and nations. It wasn't just one company. It wasn't just one country. It was uh, Bell was involved, NASA was involved, uh, Britain was involved, and France was involved. And the way they did it was they used a balloon, and it was these were so common they were called satellites, and it was launched August first, nineteen sixty. This wasn't the first satellite. It wasn't the first artificial satellite. It wasn't the first American satellite. It wasn't the satellite. It wasn't the first satellite that was used for communications. But this was the first satellite whose sole purpose was communications. So nineteen sixty. Um, you know, and that's not my lifetime, but you know, my oldest brother was alive by now and some of our listeners were alive by now and definitely most of your parents were alive by now. So, you know, this is very recent stuff. 1960, it wasn't, you know, the space shuttle launching or a rocket. They were using balloons to, uh, not only launch satellites, but be satellites. And the cool thing about these, this is before geosynchronous orbit. So they had to be able to track the orbit of the satellite and they can only use it. Like if you wanted to beam something from America to Europe, you can only do it. Uh, say it took about two and a half to three hours to circle the globe. There was like a 20 minute window in that time period where it was over the Atlantic where you could communicate between America and the European continent. And, you know, and then, and so every few hours you would have this window of opportunity. And because you were using, you know, radio waves and uh, different things like that, it was not 
instantaneous but near real time communication. You know, you could, you know, in a matter of minutes have a reply back. And so it was pretty cool. Excellent stuff. And then, you know, something near and dear to all of our hearts. This is sort of apocryphal. Not sure how accurate it is, but 1978, May 3rd, the first Viagra message, not quite, the first <laughs> spam message was sent. Yeah, Gary Thurak, and, and this is well documented on the internet, uh, many, many different sources. He worked for Digital Equipment Corporation, which was a pioneer in many aspects in the computer industry before they were acquired by Compact, who was acquired by HP. He blasted out a message to 400 of the 2,600 people on ARPANET, the so-called first internet, advertising an open house for the uh, DEX Systems 20 family. It was a DEX System 2020, I believe. And, you know, people gripe. A lot of people griped because they didn't want this. This was like the first mass market email. But he actually ended up selling a few and making some money off of the deal. So, you know, we have Gary to thank and the Digital Equipment Corporation, which if you want to go back and search the history, they were the first to come up with a disc-based portable music player. Uh, they just didn't market it as well as Apple, who came out later. Um, anyway, that's just my little <laughs> rant on history. Uh, Apple never invented anything. They just marketed it better. Indeed. And uh, I think that's it. I mean, that's certainly not the history of telecommunications, but that brings us into the modern age. Uh, and, yeah. and by by 1978, we have all the groundwork laid. Uh, the internet existed in 1978. It was just for governments uh, only, and then later for universities. Um, and it existed largely in the same form. Of course, there wasn't uh, a World Wide Web that came later, uh, but it was the internet. Uh, and often people, I don't know, our audience doesn't have that problem, but people often confu uh, confuse the two. The, the, the web is a single application on the internet. Um, but the internet, the 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 interconnected network of devices, the, the machines, the cables, that stuff was laid in the early 60s. Uh, and, and we're still using some of those wires. We've upgraded some of them, but some of them were not. Uh, yeah. And we're still using them. So uh, that is the br brief history of modern telecommunications, and I just find it fascinating. And there you go. Your first episode of 2014 <laughs> is a look back, way, way back. Yeah, and those you of you go. who heard us a couple of weeks ago, you know, why just do a history of our last year when we can, you know, we got to be different and we're all nerds and geeks and we thought it would be interesting and hopefully y'all did too. Uh, let us know what you thought about it. Did you like this? Um, did you just yawn and pass out or what? Let us know. And, uh, if you like this, we can do more in the future. We probably will, but hopefully you, hopefully at least some of y'all liked it. And uh, Chris, how exactly could they go about letting us know? Well, that's an easy one. They can always go back over to our website at elementop.com and contact us there. We, Some of us are over on the Twitter, at the Twitterverse or Facebook, but honestly, the f website or email is the best way to get a hold of us. Um, the email is edl at elementop.com. Um, if you want to put your smiling face or at least your shining voice in, in our podcast, you can give us a call on our phone number of 559 I am Opie. And, uh, we're more than happy to 
bring any of your show topics to bear or make fun of them or whatever we end up doing with your topics or comments. Also, so bring them in. Become property development, OP. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just felt the need for some legalese there. Uh, no problem. Do we have any tips this week? Why, yes, we do. Not only uh, Seth's link, but we actually have a link from Chris this week. Tell us what it is, it my is. friend. This one I actually ran across because I was looking for a way to do it, and uh, uh, the link is in the show notes. And what it is is I have a bunch of SpinRight. Um, I own SpinRight. I love the program. Most of us in the in the show do. Uh, but I have a couple of machines that I can't boot SpinRight off of. So I have to. F- I had to find a way to run SpinRight to fix some hard drive issues. Well, there's a way to do it in VirtualBox. Now the link that I have in the show notes is for doing it in Windows. But it's a fine it's a fine tuning to get it to work in Linux. Um, I've got it to work in a Windows box. Matter of fact, to test it, I have it in my the Windows machine, my gaming machine right now to test. Uh, I'm going to do it again on my Linux box to make sure that I can get it to work there. But it does work. Uh, matter of fact, the drive is at 43% of completion, So, uh, which... Considering it was at zero on the, uh, the, the main machine that it was built for, uh, 43% complete is awesome. So it does work. It does involve a little bit of, uh, uh, of tinkering in the command line. So I say it works for my tip. Ha ha ha. All right. And the cool thing about that, Chris, is that if you're running it in a virtual box or some type of VM, you're able to take uh, more advantage of the modern architecture that is out. Yep. And so it will actually run faster in many cases if you pop that hard drive out and attach it to a VM rather than trying to boot that old machine off of it. So it's a way that, you know, you do a little bit of more work on the front end to get it set up, but it can help you spin up and recover and diagnose your drives faster down the road. Yeah, the the reason I started looking at this is I Steve was talking on one of the, the Twit, I think it was Security Now not too long ago, and he was talking about how one of the his customers got a two terabyte drive to to be spin to spin. Uh, he got a two terabyte drive or something like that to go overnight instead of weeks for a, a very large drive in the terabyte range, um, which the second I heard that, I'm like, oh, I need to find out how to do that because I have about five terabyte hard drives I got to spin. So, yeah, as long as it works, use it. And there's nothing worse than having a problematic hard drive. I mean, it's enough to make you want to slap an eel or slap yeah, somebody with an eel. There if you, you go. ever or a get dirty the desire trial. to slap someone with an eel, just go over to eelslap, E-E-L-S-L-A-P dot com, and move your mouse from right to left across the screen. It doesn't really work left to right, but you just go right to left, and that guy takes it over and over again. So, you know, like, if you know some girl that just broke up with a guy, send her this, and she can just slap a guy <laughs> to her heart's content. Uh, really good for, you know, mad women who just broke up, uh, you know, after two weeks of true love. So just you can slap, you can go backwards and watch it in slow motion, and there's a little bit of slime that goes across. And this big this big plug of mucus that flies up over his head, that's the most disturbing part of it. 
eelslap.com. I want to know how how much he was paid to get slapped with an eel <laughs> because you'd have to pay me an awful lot of money to get slapped with an eel. It has 14, 134,000 likes on Facebook and 5,000 tweets. <laughs> People like seeing a, a ginger being hit with an eel. <laughs> you know, and if he didn't get paid, I hope he at least got a good dinner out of it. Oh, it, it was it was maybe eel. he got to eat the That's eel. Right. Yeah, he had to yeah, maybe. If you let me slap you with this eel, you can eat it for free. <laughs> that sounds like a deal. Eel's expensive. Oh, Seth, you started the year off right with eelslap.com. I I don't really see how we can follow anything with that. I, that clearly uh, is a showstopper. Uh, so I'm just going to say Happy New Year, everybody, and we'll see you next week. And that wraps up this episode of Everyday Linux. Everyday Linux.